0: To Stuff Mom Never Told You, from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And today's episode is inspired by social media, basically. Yeah? Yeah. Um, we're talking about the warrior women of Japan, women who were in Japan's samurai class, uh, and I have seen a lot of things being posted both on Tumblr and on Pinterest, these beautiful images of Uh, Japanese warrior women, and even women dressed as samurai warriors in photographs.
0: Yeah, there's one photo in particular that a lot of our listeners have probably seen because, like you said, Caroline, it's everywhere on Tumblr, Pinterest, it's been shared on Twitter ad nauseum, and the reception is usually, this is so cool, here's a female samurai, look, women were warriors too, so neat. And it depicts... A a Japanese woman wearing armor, and she's holding a helmet. And she does look like she's ready for battle, including her very impressive hairstyle with what looks like little flowers tucked in it. Because you know what? Even though you're going to battle, doesn't mean you have to look a mess. (laughs) Um, But as uh, Tracy and Holly, our, our pals at our sister podcast, Stuff You Missed in History Class, have also noted... This is not a female samurai, unfortunately. It, it, you know, and it's it's kind of disappointing to have to rain on what is such a fun parade. Yeah. But no, the, the photo that a lot of people have probably seen is a kabuki performer. Yeah,
1: she's an actress. She's, she's dressed up uh, incredibly for whatever play she's about to act in. But she is not, in fact, a samurai, nor is she an Onabugeisha or an Onamusha, which are the names for women warriors in Japanese culture. The Onabugeisha is also known as the female samurai. But as we'll talk about, samurai is a gendered
0: term, and it is gendered male. It does not apply to ladies. So in that case, so Caroline, does that mean that calling this episode... Samurai women is misleading? Misleading, but so deliciously click Okay. <laughs> Look at us being so transparent with our audience right now.
1: Well, that's the thing. So when I did see, um, not the photograph of the woman in her armor, but I did see um, beautiful Japanese paintings of lady warriors, I was like, oh my God, this is an amazing piece of history that I've somehow missed out on. And yes, I... I definitely have missed out on the history of women of the samurai class in japan but as i as i started to dig around and i even reblogged some stuff on tumblr and was just like should sminty do this this is definitely a topic that we should cover i realized upon further digging that oh well it's not that there were like armies of women going into battle it's just more that There were a lot of women of the samurai class who did train with weapons, but it was more about defending the homestead, defending the castle, helping their husbands
0: defend the lord of the manor, basically. It was reminiscent to me as a a far more intense version of me taking self-defense class as my P.E. in college. It's like (laughs) learning those kinds of tactics to protect myself rather than dash out onto the streets and sucker punch a lot of dudes. <laughs> I mean, I hope you're not <laughs> sucker punching anyone uh, in general.
1: <laughs> But, yeah, so I, I I wanted to know, like, who were these women? How many of them were there? Were they literally just housewives who had, like, a knife in the drawer to protect themselves? They had knives in their aprons. Yeah, what, what? so what's going on, and what what's the true story? And I was really interested to find out that the truth is somewhere between those things. A lot of people are like, yeah, Japanese women warriors, they're all over the place killing dudes. And then there's this other side of the Internet that's like, no, they didn't,
0: they weren't active at all they were just housewives and so where are we going to be in the internet are we in the middle saying you know what there were some housewives with daggers (laughs) and not a lot of them yeah there were some and there were some who did some
1: some neck chopping as we'll talk about but yeah I, i wanted to kind of get to the bottom of who these women really were and a part of understanding who they were and where they came from is Understanding how women were viewed and treated in Japanese
0: society. Yeah, so we're gonna have to give you, wait for it, some history. (laughs) Uh oh. (laughs) But this, we need to lay this foundation for. How the warrior class developed and also how religion played a role and also developing governments, because, I mean, this is we're looking at a a lot of a lot of time here.
1: Yeah. And so we're going to do our best to condense it, but still try to give you perspective on how women's roles developed through ancient medieval and then early modern Japanese society. So get ready. Put your put your samurai helmet on and let's go for a little ride.
0: Well, our ride Caroline starts in the good old days, a.k.a. ancient history. Now, the very first documented evidence of attitudes toward women are in these 8th century records called Kojiki and Nahangi. And it illustrates that women actually enjoyed fairly high status. And this was partially thanks to Shintoism, whose birth was related to the story of a sun goddess named Amaterasu, who exemplified perfection, intelligence, beauty, fertility, and purity, just like Caroline Stuff Mom Never Told You. That's right. And
1: just like Stuff Mom Never Told You, her feminine qualities, culturally, were, were really embraced and admired. Fem- Especially on Facebook. Especially on Facebook. Yeah, uh, nobody was telling her to uh, stop using upspeak or vocal fry. You mean vocal fry? Uh, yeah. Oh my God. Um, but yeah, it's just interesting to see how religion, the influence and development of religion also affects the development of the way that women are viewed and treated. Um, so in the wake of the development of Shintoism, we get this pro-lady mythology that fosters pretty generally pro-lady views in a relatively matriarchal Culture Chinese records from the time, because those Chinese had their nose in everything, being the smarty pants world power that they were. And their records show that not only were women like cool, everybody's fine with women, but they were actually encouraged to rule. And it was thought that they would be peacekeepers, that they were chaste and not given to jealousy, which is definitely different from how... I don't know, a lot of people, the stereotypes of women just being jealous and gossipers. But back then, people were like, yeah, women, great, they're going to keep the peace and, and rule with an even hand. And these Chinese records also discussed the beloved rulers Pimiko, a.k.a. Himiko. Uh, she's the first known ruler of Japan who was thought to be a descendant of that sun goddess and her daughter, Io. But so we talked about how religion affected government and affected society, and women were considered as the go-between for deities and humanity in this religion. And men were thought to be able to take those messages and put them into action. And this is coming from Akana Haruko's paper in the Japan Christian Review from 1993. And she writes that you've got men and women working together. Men and women both could be rulers. And at the time, the rulers were also priests. So power ended up being pretty evenly distributed, relatively, until the dawn of the imperial system, which consolidated power away from women. And Kristen, all of this conversation about religion and women being empowered through religion reminded me of our conversation with Kara Cooney, the Egyptologist, talking about Hatshepsut and how she used her uh, background
0: in religion to sort of gain power and become queen. Well, and you just mentioned that with the dawn of imperialism, Power was consolidated away from women, but there's also this instance of Empress Jingu in the third or fourth century heading up an army. Possibly this might also be a myth, but weapons and armor were found in 4th century female rulers' tombs. So it's not clear whether it's because they actually fought or whether the weapons were symbolic. So even though maybe their their power, actual power, was slipping away, they would still get in on the warfare action from time to time. But then we see a shift in the 6th century away from Shintoism as
1: Buddhism is introduced, and it really affected attitudes toward women. We get these anti-feminine views imported from China. Suddenly, women go from being intelligent and symbolizing purity and fertility, and they can rule and we love them, they're peacekeepers, to being seductresses with an evil nature. And so this ends up fostering a chauvinistic society and kind of shuttles women off to a subordinate place. So basically, under this structure, only men can attain enlightenment. And if you're a woman, you can attain enlightenment if you're reincarnated as
0: a man. So so good for you. And women's worth lay in political alliances created through father-arranged marriages, which sounds a lot like old-style Western marriages as well. And when we move forward to the Han period from 794 to 1185 A.D., things don't get much better. Women's activities are super restricted. They have less access to education. There's a belief that they shouldn't be seen by men, which is interesting that during this period... This is happening because there was an explosion in aristocratic women's writing. But maybe it's just because they didn't have much else to do while they were locked away, which explains why I have so many diaries from my (laughs) homeschool years.
1: Uh, Dear dear diary, um, today is uh, century century three of us being locked away from society. Uh, We used to be empresses. Um, Maybe tomorrow uh, will be a better day. XOXO. Yeah, and, and it did. Tomorrow was a better day, relatively.
0: When we enter the feudal period. In... <laughs> Feudalism was the better day? Is that what you're about to say? Yeah, well, I mean, for ladies. <laughs> oh, man. Talk about a real hard glass half full. It, it puts it in stark relief. Yeah, so from 1185
1: to 1603, that's the feudal period in Japan. And this is when we see the rise of the samurai warrior class. Uh, and samurai means those who serve. So they're basically like knights, if you want to think of an equivalent in Western culture. Uh, knights without the whole chivalry aspect. There was no, like, hey, we need to uh, treat our ladies wi- with respect and, like, put our capes down in puddles and, and save damsels and, and things like that. There, they didn't give a hoot for courtly love. There was no damsel in distress, worries, or anything like that. So... It's interesting, though, that as we get feudalism, we also get less restrictive Buddhist sex emerging, and that's S-E-C-T-S, groups of Buddhists, not Buddhist sex, as in sexy times, although who knows, maybe...
0: You never know. During this glass half full feudal period, (laughs) things were really loosening up. Well, women's
1: freedom did expand. They were allowed rights to inheritance and to will property to their children. They were relatively more active in society. They managed their household staffs. They oversaw household finances and some of them trained in the samurai way of life. And this and this entails both training with weapons, training in martial arts and fighting, but also just training in that way of life that involved duty and loyalty.
0: And then DNA tests that were performed not too long ago on recently excavated bodies dating back to a battle in 1580 found that 35 of those dead bodies were women and had these been siege situations it's possible the women's remains were there because they kill them killed themselves to protect their honor and that because that happened a lot the whole I mean I don't know that you would classify that specifically as Harakuri, but there was a the whole like honorable suicide thing going on uh, but instead it seems more likely in this situation that they were actually fighting so there's evidence you know that there are at least 35 of them out there <laughs> yeah there are at least 35 and this- And this is just part of the
1: interesting thing about lost history. I mean, we we just don't know how many warrior women there were, how they were really viewed. It's entirely possible that they were more common than we understand them to be, but that they were just not written about in in the history books. And so anyway, this this expanded role for women, it, it just did not stay this way forever. Husband and wife relationships began to resemble that whole feudal lord-subject relationship, which just means... Total and utter submission to the husband as the Lord. And so when we move into the Tokugawa era from 1603 to 1867, marriage and pleasing the husband is really the only role that women were fit for. Nobody had a great opinion of ladies at this time. Uh, Samurai husbands were no longer out there fighting. They were more like bureaucrats. Women, however, were still expected during this time to raise the kids with a proper... Samurai education, because there wasn't much else they could do. <laughs> what was a proper samurai education? This would still be in terms of loyalty, serving the home, serving the family, serving the Lord, uh, learning to fight and use weapons
0: properly. When I hear serving the Lord, Caroline, it does just take me right back <laughs> to evangelical church.
1: Yeah, this definitely means like the Lord and master in terms of your feudal Lord. Not so much... Jesus. I don't know if Japan was down with
0: Jesus yet at this time. (laughs) I don't think Jesus had gotten to Japan yet. But what does all of this really say about women, warriors and samurai with all of this up and down and women being hidden away for these different periods? Was there really an opportunity for them to even be warriors? Because some sources out there say women of the samurai achieved prominence, but others claimed they were just fulfilling their duties as housewives, which we noted earlier. There's kind of that spectrum of like, yeah, they were totally there. And other people being like, no, they were just at home. So what gives though, Caroline? Let's, let's pull some more meat from this timeline that we just trotted through. So before we get into some of these fighting women and talk about what they fought with, which is pretty neat. Some disclaimers. Like we said at the top of the podcast, these are not those Pinterest-friendly images from the late 19th century depicting women, probably kabuki performers, dressed as samurai. And like you said, Caroline, even calling them samurai women is a little bit misleading because of how samurai is a gendered term. So can you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well so the women warriors of this period are
1: referred to as Onebu geisha or so called female samurai like you said, but that more literally means women practicing the art of war. You've got the term geisha in there like geishas who are performing artists. And then you've got the term Onamusha, which more literally means women warriors. So they definitely were, would not have been referred to as samurais back then. And they technically shouldn't be referred to as samurais now. But the terms exist, and so did these
0: women. But it is true that they existed Within the context of their individual households, because typically women in the warrior class could be characterized by their role as castle slash homestead defenders. So when the king or the Lord, not to be confused with Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) was away, protection of the home fell to the wife. Her front was the home while her husband was on the battlefield, and there was deep deep loyalty to the clan. This is part of that samurai education that we mentioned a few minutes ago. And what did they use to defend their homestead? Not just any old sword. <laughs> not not a not a slingshot, not nunchucks. But rather, something called a naginata. Yeah, it's basically a sort of spear sword
1: hybrid. So it looks like a long pole with a curved blade at the end. And it was really cute because they're all pink for the <laughs> girls, Caroline. <laughs> Did you know that? That's how you know that it was, yeah, that's how you know it's for women. They're real light. Yeah, and, and girls would learn to use it from a relatively young age, and when they reached adulthood, they were also given kaiken or small knives, for both self-defense and also suicide if their virtue was threatened. So basically, you had to be prepared to die to protect your own honor as well as your family's honor. And a little bit of context to that is that a short life was really not viewed as a tragedy. It was, it was admirable, especially if you died in the name of protecting your family or your honor. But also, when rumors of raping and pillaging preceded an invading army, it was not uncommon for women of that village or clan to participate in a mass suicide. And we saw a couple of interesting examples of basically ancient suicide notes left by women who were in this very situation that illustrate I don't want to insinuate that suicide is interesting but I think they illustrate how women's role in this samurai class and that the way they fulfilled their the way that they were supposed to fulfill their duty as part of the samurai class, So one from the 19th century says, each time I die and am reborn in the world, I wish to return as a stalwart warrior. And another woman wrote, I have heard that this is the way of the warrior. And so I set out on the journey to the land of the dead. So I think that says a lot about, yeah, their their front, as you said, might not be on the battlefield, but they certainly felt that they had a
0: duty to perform during times of war. And that Naginata was a tool to guard one's personal sanctity unless it was actually used for battle because this did happen from time to time. Uh, martial arts historian Ellis Amder cites a 16th century chronicle of a warrior wife who led more than 80 soldiers against the enemy after finding women and children in her husband's castle had committed mass suicide. Yeah, so obviously there were some
1: women who were like, uh, no, not all the women in my clan get to kill themselves and just have that go by as... A normal thing. And then author Stephen Turnbull describes the 19th century wife of a magistrate who, fearing the imperial army would slaughter her family, ended up cutting off her hair, preemptively killing her mother-in-law and daughter, and then charging out into the fighting with her Naginata in hand. Intense. Very intense. So we really get this image of the Naginata wielding warrior woman emerging during the warring states period, which is it falls under that feudal period uh, in the mid 15th to the early 17th centuries. And we start to get these accounts of warlords, wives wearing armor and leading women into fights with
0: those Naginata. But historical accounts of women in action deal more often with samurai class women defending the home rather than specifically going out onto the battlefield. So basically, the deal was that if you were a samurai dude, which is kind of redundant to even say uh, you'd be part of the warrior class and you had to accept that your whole family was obliged to serve. The lord and master. Would that also be like the shogun with the you know, because the shogun is the general. So they would all essentially be loyal to the shogun. And it wasn't uncommon for the women folk to have to perform the men folks duties if they were away, which might include everything from just working on house repairs to defending the castle or home. To, you know, uh, taking care of heads once they've been chopped off of bodies, because there is a very ceremonial uh, presentation of decapitated heads that would happen after the... The fighting had chilled out for a minute. Yeah,
1: women's role during war, if they were if they were holed up in the castle, it was really interesting. So they'd be doing everything from casing bullets to caring for the wounded to throwing wet blankets on cannonballs before they could explode. Can you imagine? I would not sign up for that job. I'll be like, I'll be over here um casing the bullets because there's no blood involved in that and no potential dismemberment from cannonballs. Um but yeah, like Kristen said, they would also prepare enemy heads for for head-viewing ceremonies. And I read this and was like, um, this sounds awful. What is a head-viewing ceremony? And it's literally that. It's like cleaning up the head, washing it, blackening the teeth, and and presenting it to, to the victor or the victorious family or clan, to be like, hey, 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 look at what we did. Very Game of
0: Thronesy back then.
1: Very. Well, so, in the mid-17th century, though, after the Warring States period, we we hit a, a little bit of a more peaceful time. Women are still being trained to use the Naginata because by this point it's pretty much a ladies' tool and it's only associated with them. But instead of... All of this protecting the castle from the enemy thing. They basically became, as one source said, kind of like a a neighborhood watch type of thing. So even though their rights were more restricted, they were expected to stay in the home. They would still, if a stranger entered the area, grab the old Naginata and run outside to protect their hood from strangers. It's
0: like housewives today who buy tasers, (laughs) you know they are actually, like, taser shows instead of Tupperware parties. Really? There are taser parties. Yes. I know this firsthand from someone oh. who has been to one and purchased one. I would... De- there, there are pink-washed tasers. I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, Naginata, way cooler, though. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> no, I'm not advocating for tasers in the home. Um, but let's talk, though, about some of the specific women, because one thing that definitely emerged as we were researching this topic was that, A, the numbers are low, and B, there are just a handful of actual individual women with names that you hear about who are repeated over and over again in any kind of female samurai roundup or history that you might read. And again, I keep catching myself saying female samurai, because uh, I feel like I'm just... You it's know. shorthand. Okay, okay. Sure. <sighs> I, I forgive you. Some of our listeners might write in, but hey, we get we get it. We understand. Least, yeah, may I acknowledge <laughs> that my, the imprecision of my language.
1: Well, so in addition to the countless women that we've been talking about who defended their homes and avenged the deaths of family and lords... We wanted to name a few that stand out in the history books. But the first two that we're going to talk about should be taken with a slight grain of salt because mainly they may not have really existed. Oh, no. Yeah. So Tomo Gozen is one of the most famous, most often cited examples of a woman warrior. But she might have been a legend. It's not sure why. If she was a legend, she was created. It's possible that she was created to shame a certain male warrior to make him seem like he needed a woman to help him. But regardless, it is a great story. And so let's take it as that and talk about the legendary Toma Gozen. First of all, Gozen is not her last name. It's not like how I'm Caroline Irvin. Gozen is a title, and it's basically young lady, and it was sometimes applied to women warriors specifically. So you could be Gozen Caroline. Yeah. Young lady Caroline. Well, it just reminds me of Gozer from Ghostbusters. And then and then I just go on a tangent in my brain. And then you Gozen on a tangent. <laughs> Well, so during the Genpei War from 1180 to 85, uh, Tomo supposedly fought alongside male samurai warriors. And there's an account, a historical account that's possibly made up that says many times she had taken the field, armed at all points and won matchless renown in encounters with the bravest captains. And so in this last fight, when all the others had been slain or fled among the last seven, there rode Tomo. And she's the only woman warrior to be described in any detail in any war account. And so it's this, it's this detail and this focus on her and her accomplishments and her badassery that makes people go, well, are we sure that she actually existed? And and even if she didn't, it's a great myth, and it's a great story. The same way that you might be inspired by the story of, like, Athena, and think Athena's a great character in history, I think Tomo is, too. She's described as beautiful, fearless, and a master swordsman and archer who led men into battle. And legend has it that she escaped her enemies during a battle and gave up fighting to marry or become a concubine, whichever. And when her husband died, she ended up becoming a nun.
0: And she's depicted a lot in art, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of times those female warrior uh, paintings or even embroidery that you might see could be depicting Tomo Gozen. Or they could be depicting Hangaku
1: Gozen, also, who apparently rode into battle when her clan rebelled against the shogunate or the military leadership in 1189. She ended up getting wounded and captured, and an enemy soldier who wanted her as a bride kept her from committing seppuku. However, other accounts do say she remained in the castle the whole time until being
0: felled by an arrow. And seppuku would have been an honorable suicide? Correctamundo. Well, and then we have a third. And is she more verified, historically verified, and Twitter verified? Yeah. <laughs> our next our next three are Twitter verified. So in 1577, Uino Surahimi led a group of more than 30 women in a charge against besieging troops. And when the samurai wouldn't engage and kill the women the frustrated women warriors returned to the castle and, you guessed it, committed mass suicide. Well, just imagine... Okay, so
1: here are these women who are like, we're going to do our duty, we're going to do our honor, we're going to be honorable women warriors. We are going to go to war with these men. And they go outside and the guys are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We might, we might not understand the concept of chivalry or practice it, but we're not going to kill ladies. And the women are like, Ser- seriously? We...
0: But I've got my armor and my Naginata, like. Well I wonder if they were like, we're not gonna kill you because we could just capture you and make you our concubines. True story. Probably accurate. And another figure who's often cited is Nakano
1: Takiko, who fought during the Boshin Civil War from 1868 to 69. During the Battle of Aizu, she led other women warriors known as the Women's Army. And, of course, they weren't recognized as an official part of the army, but they went up against the Imperial Army, who were horrified to see that they were facing women. And so, again, similarly, they decided to stop fighting and take the women alive. And, of course, the women were like, oh, wait, so you guys, you're not, like, fighting
0: right now? Oh, well, we're just going to kill a whole bunch of you then. And after she was shot in the chest, she asked her sister to behead her so the enemy wouldn't. Again, it's all about honor and death. It's like, no, 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 no one else is going to kill me. Yeah. I will go down the way. It's like, you can't fire me. I quit. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And so her sister did it, which I also can't imagine. Her sister beheaded her and then buried her head. And now there's like a there's a memorial statue that you can go visit. Oh,
0: yeah. Wasn't that the one where uh, schoolgirls will often go and visit this monument to her because she's such a heroine? Yeah, that's pretty neat. Any, any Japanese listeners, if you've been there and have a photo, please send it to us.
1: Yeah, or just any more details. We, we want to hear details about all of this stuff. And another woman we want to tell you about is Yamamoto Yaeko, who in 1868, during that same Battle of Aizu, replaced her gunnery instructor father who'd been killed during the fighting and using her repeating rifle she fought alongside the men and she's a really fascinating character like we could have done an entire episode just on her alone but she went on to teach at the Kyoto women's school where she met and married this guy who sounds pretty awesome he's a pro women's rights former samurai who had spent a lot of time in the U.S. And together, as a pair, they founded the Doshisha University in Kyoto. So after her husband died, she ends up joining the Japanese Red Cross, leading a team of 40 nurses during the war between China and Japan, and becomes one of the first women in Japan to be decorated for her service to the country. Wow. Yeah, I mean, she's an incredible figure, as are all of these women, even... Tomo goes in, who's potentially a mythological character.
0: Well, I love the story, too, of Yamamoto, though, because she just keeps going and going and going. And it at least is honored. And I mean, I guess, I mean, there's the monument to Nakano, but Yamamoto, you know, was able to to go and lead those those nurses during the Sino-Japanese war. Yeah, she she
1: really didn't stop. She continued on with the attitude of having duty, of having honor, um wanting to serve others, serve her country, um and leading other women as she did it. And so while there's not a ton of unfortunately, while there's not a ton of hard evidence out there about Warrior women in Japan, and even though a bunch of sources do contradict each other, I think it is interesting just to look at how culture shaped not only views of women, but what they were even allowed to do. And that even if a woman could not be a samurai, because a samurai is a is a dude soldier, um she could still pursue that duty and honor in her own way as
0: part of the samurai class. Well, and their biographies just exemplify that cultural loyalty that was so instilled through so many generations, too.
1: Well, so I'm definitely interested in hearing from listeners. I know we have a bunch of history buffs and specifically some Japanese history buffs out there. I know we had a lot of comments on um, the Tumblr post about the Onubu Geisha. And so, I mean, if you have any stories, have you done any research?
0: Um, Have you, in fact, trained in any martial arts? Do you own a Naginata and use it? Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, I have a couple letters here about our
1: waist training episode. This one's from Megan. She says, You mentioned at one point that Jessica Alba started wearing a waist trainer after having a baby, helped her uterus go back to its previous size. While I agree that waist trainers are dangerous, and it's unlikely that her waist trainer really had this effect because it doesn't really go down far enough to fully support the uterus... There is a history of using belly banding of some sort to support the uterus postpartum and assisting it in returning to its pre-baby shape, to support the back during pregnancy, and to assist patients with uterine prolapse support the muscles of the uterus. As a midwife in training, this is something that's of great interest to me. And so Megan recommends looking up information about the use of fajas in Guatemala, which she says is a traditional Mayan belly banding device for pregnant women. She says these should definitely be used with caution as if they are tied too tightly. There can be side effects, but they have been anecdotally found helpful by women who use them in South America. Just another thought on the subject. So thanks, Megan.
0: I've got a letter here from Susan, also about our waist training episode. And let me just tell you how many letters we've gotten about this episode. I love it. Uh, so she writes... Uh, several years ago, I was getting fitted for bridesmaids' dresses. And at the time, I was the heaviest I'd been, so I was already a little apprehensive of getting fitted. When I went in, the first thing the sales lady said to me was, Well, I can tell from your bust, you're going to need a much bigger size. Lovely. Anyway, as I was trying the sample size on and she measured me, she suggested that I think about losing weight before the wedding. She kindly reminded me that there was plenty of time before the wedding to lose a few pounds. And maybe I should think about wearing a corset. She went on and on about how it will make me look so much slimmer and leaner and give me a much better all-around look. Feeling completely exposed, offended, and embarrassed, I just kept saying things like, "Uh, Yeah, great, thanks. After she was done explaining all the benefits of a corset on the day of the event, she suggested I start wearing one now to get used to it and to help me lose weight. Again, I said, oh, great, thanks, to which she followed up with, well, if he can't breathe, he can't eat. I was horrified. I quickly dressed, paid for my overpriced dress, and ran out of there as fast as I could. I promised I would never subject my bridesmaids to that kind of behavior or service if I ever got married. I laugh about it today because it's just so ridiculous that anyone would say that in 2012 when this happened. But it was incredibly embarrassing and terribly offensive. Thanks so much for putting out such a great podcast with such great topics. I recommend it to so many people I know, women and men. So thank you so much, Susan. And oh boy, to that saleswoman, if you're listening, uh, please never do that to a human body again. We will now, want to hear your stories? Mom stuff at is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, with this one including our sources, so you can learn more firsthand about the warrior women of Japan, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.